Hey, welcome to Manalyzing. This is where men talk about the kind of stuff that men don't talk about. Put your hard hat on, get ready for a ride. Here we go. Now, Wes, tell me about you. Um, well, my name is Wes, uh, short for Wesley, and uh-huh. I'm a 37-year-old guy just experiencing the experience of life, basically. <laughs> and uh, for for the benefit of uh, of everybody out there listening in uh, podcast land, how did we meet and, and how long ago? We, we've been best friends for the last thousand years, right? Yeah, I uh, think last week or maybe it was two weeks ago i sent out a message to you because i noticed that you had i guess in a video you had said something along the lines of you had an issue that you were trying to figure out so i just sent you a message maybe this could help right and uh, you got back to me and you said well yeah i also want to hear more about this what you're talking about isolation and loneliness and yeah. you gave me your phone number i called you within about five minutes and uh we talked for maybe 10 minutes and you're like no we, we got to do this on the podcast yeah we got to do it on a podcast and what i've learned uh in radio and in podcasting is if you tell a story once and it's off the air and then you tell it again uh, you always summarize. You, you know that there's a totally different group of ears listening, but you always summarize. So I, I've learned to to not let that happen. And uh, you know, if there's a good story, then it's like, don't tell me until we get a microphone churning. So in, in the isolation category, it's interesting that you mentioned that. I was um, talking yesterday. We had a group of uh, 20-somethings over, and a friend of mine and I was explaining to them what manalyzing is. I explained that, um, that, and I thought it was a pretty outlandish statement, or at least it was a reach. I said, all men are lonely. Mm-hmm. And my buddy who, uh, who was, you know, four or five feet away from me, he grabbed onto that and he said, it's absolutely true. I know that to be true. And I'm like, dude, you must be lonely too. And, yeah. and he's been uh, one of my best friends for, what, five years? But he's never told me that. Wow. Yeah. You're opening people up, Garth. <laughs> Apparently. I know that's your mission, man. That's You're doing it. Yeah. It's, it's amazing how isolated we all are. And there's nobody to blame but ourselves. No. Uh, see, and that's one of the things is, there's nobody to blame but ourselves. However, we all kind of hit the ground running at different times, I've noticed. Uh And it's really an awakening. It's once you realize, oh, I'm on autopilot. I didn't realize I was on autopilot until I was in my 30s. And then what the controls that I thought I had, I woke up from those and realized there was controls on other sides of me. And I was like, oh, I can control those as well. What do you and mean so by controls? Just the the things that you can do in your life. For example, every person is powerful beyond imagination. Okay. We, I mean, I could get 
down to it because I know you don't like to talk so much about the story as it is, you know, the the effects and the lessons learned. Right. Yeah. And, so to to explain that, basically, what I what I find is that if somebody says, you know, and then I was getting a divorce, and my ex wife said I suck, and then I said, and then I said you suck, and then we we filed. Uh, you know, X, Y, and Z papers with the, with the, um, with the court. And then she said this, and then she took my kids, nobody cares. But, uh, but if somebody says, you know, and then I went home and I was lonely. Mm-hmm. Now we're, we've got somebody who's going, yeah, I hear you because that's where I am. Absolutely. So, so yeah, uh, I interrupted you. Go ahead. Oh, no worries. So I realized that humans are basically artificial intelligence. Okay. And I realized this just kind of through happenstance, like I said, observation. I noticed that everything people do, we do for protection of ourselves or someone we care about. Every single action we do in life comes down to one of those two things. It's either to better ourselves, which is a form of protecting and thriving through life, Uh or to protect our loved ones. And I don't personally have children of my own, but I know that's a huge thing with parents is they, they feel, and I know you're a parent, but they feel as though their child is an extension of them. So they have to protect them as well. Yeah, so, I, you run into any mom or most moms and it's like, you know, you can, you can do whatever to them and they'll put up with it, but you go after mm-hmm. their kid and all of a sudden, you know, I weigh, I weigh 245 mm-hmm. and, uh, and all of a sudden now I'm afraid of this hundred uh, pound angry woman who, you yes. know, I made her toddler tip over. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I, I realized that that is the way people are. And I always say this because it it blows my mind is humans have very basic needs, which is to eat, sleep, and procreate, basically. We ended up with skyscrapers and airplanes (laughs) because we also have the need to innovate and create. There's uh, what is that Maslow's hierarchy of needs? Yes, uh, and I don't know them specifically, but uh-huh. I have heard that, and I I believe it's true through, like I said, observation. Right. So getting back to what I was saying about the patterns is, and AI is, I realized that I'm not the biggest religious person, but I respect religion and I I love what's in the Bible and stuff, and I know there is a Proverbs. I I believe it's chapter 22 verse 6 uh-huh and it basically even in the bible i've learned that in the bible almost every brilliant idea i come up with in my own genius mind is already written in the bible <laughs> so <laughs> this uh, proverb it says if you show a child the way and you teach them that way follow that way for the rest of their life right and that's a pattern you put somebody, I always call people wind-up toys, right? Because with every specialized interest we have, we kind of get attached to it, sometimes obsessed with it. And that's why we stay focused and go down that path in life. So 
if you put somebody, you pique their interest and you just set them in that direction, they're going to follow that interest forever if until something else catches their attention. The way that was explained to me, I was a teenager and it was in a church setting, but it was a guy um, who basically, he only taught for, well, I think 12 weeks and then he quit, which was very unusual for, for a church setting like that. Generally, you're in for about a year, but he says, uh, let's say, for example, that somebody throws a snowball at your car. Mm-hmm. If you basically, and this is not the way he described it, but if you basically own it yourself, yes, um, then you that your next action can be a choice. You know, your your default action might be to jump up and down and yell and scream and get the license plate number and go in and stomp and yell at the wife, kick the dog, and be hungry for the rest of the day. That might right. be what they made you do. Mm-hmm. Um, if you own yourself. You got a lot of choices. You could you could dance the jig. You could yes. whirl around and um, and sing "Happy Birthday to Me." You know, you could do anything at all. Uh, exactly. Somebody throwing a snowball at you doesn't force you to have any reaction. Exactly. And uh, that that was news to me at the time, and I've I've tried to remember that as I move forward. Yeah, that's. Uh, that's a good lesson to learn. So to answer the question, which was, what did I mean by the controls of my life? Uh-huh. So this, these patterns, this AI that I believe people are basically the same thing. So we develop or we take in basically these habits and these patterns, and then we allow them to run our lives. They just keep going and going and going. And then we'll make our decisions, but those things that are just going in the background, those wheels are still turning. And that's our subconscious mind, basically. Yeah, in a sense, we're all zombies. And we, uh, when something acts on us, we react the way that we predict that we will. And we don't really ever stop and think about anything about, hey, am I going to react this way or that? I'm just going to go, you know, hey, the sun was shining in the morning, so I, I got up more quickly. Uh, yeah. There, there's no conscious decision making, no owning our our lives. Absolutely not. And until people do that, until they realize those controls are there and they can take control of them, they can just be on the fast lane of autopilot straight to their death. They're just going straight to their death. I love that. This is. As a home inspector, you know, everything everything that I do leads to death. And I uh, that's how I terrify people. Um, mm-hmm. You know, obviously, the goal isn't to, to terrify everybody at every house. But, you know, a, a fireplace uh, can lead to carbon monoxide. It can lead to the house burning down, which results in everybody being dead. Um, yes. Bad wiring, uh, structural issues, you know, everything results, even mice, it results in everything, everybody being dead. It's it's one of those it's one of those things where we you know we're alive. Why not live? Why not why not make our own decisions? Yes, and being consciously aware because people forget that we die. I mean, it's probably programmed into us. I mean, God, the universe, what people believe. Uh-huh. It seems to be a part of us to not worry so much about it because we would just be so overwhelmed and. As you know, men are already 
overwhelmed, whether they're consciously aware of they're being overwhelmed, their their actions and their attitudes reflect it. And to go back to what I was saying about the autopilot and everything is I found that there are ways to basically hack that system, which is breaking the pattern. And that is what I meant by taking control of things. And what that is, is basically just choosing the pattern. If you create your own pattern, you've taken control, but you have to be mindful that that pattern is going to keep going if you pay attention to it or not. So you have to keep in mind, okay, this is going to run off the cliff if I let it. Yeah. What do you do for a living? Currently, I actually don't do anything. I I am actually here in Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. I came, I'm basically in Tulsa. Uh, I came here last year from San Jose, California to basically see my grandmother on her deathbed for the last time. And I came and I assisted her in hospice for about three weeks until she passed away. And while I was here, without any intention of staying here, my mother got sick. And so I ended up staying and helping with her. She's doing much better now, but I've kind of asked myself what my end game is here because I'm not making a solid income right now. So I am basically living off of good faith and of taking care of other people. (laughs) (laughs) What, uh, when, when you are working, what uh, sort of things are you doing? So I've been on a slow climb basically up. Uh, My last career profession was driving professionally, Uh like black car driving. Bullet car driving. So black car, uh, luxury executive. Okay. That kind of thing. Oh, that sounds kind of cool. Basically being a chauffeur, uh, Uh it definitely has its stories. It definitely has its its perks. But let me tell you, in the, the topic of isolation and loneliness, driving is one of the most soul-sucking, lonely experiences a person can have. Why is that? When you're driving other people, when you're car- carting them around. Uh-huh. So there are a lot of people who will engage and they will just have amazing conversations but for the most part, I don't even know how people drive Uber and Lyft and stuff like that, because most people don't want to be bothered. So they don't want you talking to them and they're not going to speak up and talk to you. So you can go hours and hours and hours, say 15, 16 hours driving people all day long and not a single person will talk to you. And then to reinforce it, Someone will talk to you and you cannot stop talking because you have so much observation and so much to say that you start feeling self-conscious about, oh, I'm too much for this person. And then it becomes this cycle. And I've noticed that because my profession as a driver was training other drivers. And so I got to experience that I wasn't the only one feeling that way. Oh, that, uh, that that makes sense. It's interesting too. In the hairdressing profession, um, they 
I guess, are used to working with women who are going to blather. And mm-hmm. you, I was able to tell, it didn't take much work. I was able to tell, I, I felt like I needed to talk to. And, and those ladies, they, they learned to just kind of tune things out to the point that they can, they can basically grunt a response or, or indicate that they're listening, but they're not listening. Right. And they don't want to be listening. And they just <laughs> work alone is, is, is the signal I got from, from a lot of them back when I had hair. Well, that's the autopilot again. That's that pattern that they set. And now it can go while they, they're probably in their head figuring out what they're going to cook for dinner, what they're doing this weekend. Uh-huh. And even though that's happening, because I've also been a dispatcher in that world of driving. Uh-huh. So I know that just like within that woman, that hairdresser's head, or it could even be a male, but inside their head, they're so used to doing what they're doing that maybe the person in the chair is talking to them and they're not really engaged because they're not saying anything really worth listening to except for what the person in the chair thinks is important because it's their life. But the other person who's actually cutting the hair, they've got other things to do. They're like, ah, this is just another person. I've heard this before three times today from three other people. Yeah. It's another head of hair. That's kind of a male thing. I feel like uh, generally us males, if we're, especially me, if I'm doing something, that's what I'm doing. And right. other things are just distraction. So, yeah. you know, I mean, if, uh, if, if you and I are talking on a podcast and my wife comes screaming in and she says the house is on fire, my first reaction is, but I'm doing a podcast. Yes. And um, whereas women can kind of manage 60 things at once. And, and, and so, yeah, but I think, I think for hairdressers, for example, that, that is kind of what they're doing. It's like, yeah, you're talking, but I'm doing your hair. Yes. And it is an autopilot thing. And isn't it sad? We get whatever number of years, 40, 50, 80, 90 uh, years on the planet. And we fritter away how many of them being zombies. Like I said, I was in my thirties already before I even realized that. I wasn't in control and I've learned better ways to take control. And like I said, that's disrupting the pattern and creating my own pattern. And by that, I'd like to share kind of a mantra that I live my life by. And that is, it's not original, of course, but it's nothing happens to me. Everything happens for me, which everybody knows. But I added a third thing, which is not everything is about me. Oh, that's interesting. That goes me well, back I'd like to the to give an example of that, but I don't Okay, let's do it. Well, I guess it goes me back to the Greeks. Um, you know, they they believed that what happens to you is neither good, bad, nor sideways. What is good mm-hmm. or bad is how you respond to it. Yes. So go ahead. So the way that I like to give an example of not everything is about me is mourning someone's death at a funeral. Uh-huh. So I've been in experiences where a mother or grandmother feels so heartbroken and distraught. And they're a vain person anyway. I mean, it's everybody knows they can say it themselves, but they will moan and cry so loudly that they become the center of attention and everything becomes about them at a funeral. Right. 
And I don't know if you've seen this before. Oh, I totally have. It's something that it made me step outside of myself and realize, okay, not everything is about me. Right now, I'm sad because a loved one is gone, but I'm not going to take away from their moment. Yep. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's, I, I told, I had that happen when my dad died. Mm-hmm. You know, one member of the family decided to make sure she was closer than everybody else to my dad. It was a very planned thing. Um, we we knew pretty much the hour that he was going to die because we took him off his meds. So, you know, and, and that's what he'd asked for. All he'd talk about for five years is, I want to join my wife. And the nurse basically says, look, there's a way to do that. He says, great, let's do it. Mm-hmm. And so we gathered the family around and and. It was it was there in the living room. He found his favorite chair and uh, off his meds and, you know, a little bit of uh, painkiller. And and it was about 15 minutes. And so she had to be closer to him, checking his vitals. And, and then when he did finally take his uh, final breath and she broke out of tears, I'm like, what part of this is a, is a surprise to you? Um, I don't know. Maybe I'm just a cold heart. But I don't know. She, yeah, there's, there's a lot of people who, who love to make things about themselves. And uh, so not alone there. Well, this is the thing is for one, I appreciate you sharing that. I know that's, that's a tough memory to have. And I noticed that I can't blame anybody for anything. I honestly Uh can't because like I said, we're, I'm experiencing the experience of life and that's what everybody else is doing. And if you take into consideration, everything everybody does is to protect themselves or someone they care about to stay alive and to survive until their death. The thing is, is people get, they get caught up in their patterns. So they don't realize they're just moving towards death. But what a lot of people do is they become very, let's say, scarce-minded, scarcity-minded. They want to protect themselves so much that they step on other people. They they need validation. They need to know everything is about themselves. And the truth is, is you've probably been that way. I've for damn sure have been that way until Mm -hmm. I realized this isn't good for me. And it's not people don't like me for it. And I don't like myself for it. Yeah, the scarcity mindset. I've got, uh, I know a guy who, um, very talented, extremely talented. He, he is, he's forgotten more of his talents than I will ever have. He, mm-hmm. He's that guy. Um, but he always has to remind people in the room how talented he is. Yeah. And so he loses all of the points, much of the respect that he has, because he, because he begs for it, basically. Yeah. Um, and yeah, we're, I'm guilty of that as well. Uh, I, I, I've, I've told people that, uh, somebody called me the stage manager the other day and she was being nice. Uh, somebody, she, same person called me beige the other day and she was being nice. She was pointing out that uh, the world needs the beige. Um, but in my case, you know, guilty as charged. I don't want to be beige. Uh, I want right. to be, I want to be something a little bit more remarkable. Well, that reminds me, I've talked about the speeding off the highway to your death. 
Uh, I think I heard you say mention this at one time. Maybe not. Maybe it been someone else. But the the whole concept of staying in your lane. Uh huh. I'll say this about me: is I'm very aware of of confirmation bias. I'm very aware that everything has an opposite. So. I don't believe in absolutes of any kind. I absolutely don't believe in absolutes, which means there's an exception <laughs> available there somewhere. Uh-huh. I believe in exceptions uh, because without exceptions, when an exception happens, it it triggers disbelief or it maybe not triggers it so much as it exposes it, uh-huh. which means you didn't really have faith in that thing being the way it was in the first place. So I know I say a lot <laughs> going through this down this this highway, though, staying in your lane as a driver. I know that in city streets, certain times a day, like towards the evening, you don't want to be in the left lane. And this is on city streets. I'm not talking about the highway. You don't want to be in the left lane because a lot of people are making left hand turns into neighborhoods and into shopping centers. And you don't want to be in the far right lane because people are making turns all the time. So you want to usually stay, if there's that third middle lane, somewhere around there. Uh-huh. Because the far left lane is the usually the turning lane. And this is the lane that I'm saying in the middle of a road. So way down here is still the, the traffic lights and they're cutting into a neighborhood or something. Right. On the road going turning left. So in doing that, I realize you have to be alert in which lane you're staying in. And in order to get anywhere, you usually have to make some turns. So getting to where you need to go, you have obstacles. And you don't always want the obstacle itself to be the thing that points you in the right direction. You want to map it out usually in a way that you're going to get there yourself without having to hit the rock before you decide, oh, there's a rock there, I'm going to turn. So thinking things out in that way, staying in your lane, it can be really great advice. But to other people, they're going to think about it, they're going to overthink it, and they're going to be like, no, I don't want to stay in my lane because I have places to go. I'm going to have to turn into this neighborhood. I'm going to have to get you know, to another highway, because this isn't the highway that leads to my goals. This is just getting me to the on-ramp. Right. Yeah, that was Aaron. Uh, he was a good interview. Um, and in, in that one, we were talking about, uh, so for example, I'm a, I'm a civil engineer by training. Mm-hmm. And civil engineering is boring uh, to me. I, I enjoyed doing the water engineering, but never found a job doing that. So uh, mostly it was highways and it was environmental work, et cetera. So then I ended up doing the home inspections because it was much better for me. I was my own boss and there was uh, nobody to think, you know, for me to think he sucks because the boss was me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then I had somebody who told me uh, when I was talking about doing like podcasts and stuff, he, he was like, no, you're an engineer, do engineering stuff. And I was like, now, I I have a passion for podcasting, and I'm going to do that. And it's not my lane, but that's okay. So 
Um, I, I want to cover the whole isolation thing. You've felt it. I've felt it. Uh, my buddy has felt it. He, he made that very clear twice yesterday uh, that all men are lonely. Talk to me about what that means for you. All right. So first, I want to say good for you for not staying in your lane with the engineering. <laughs> I'm really glad you're doing this. So being lonely, loneliness and isolation is pretty much the only thing I've ever known in my life. So I kind of grew up as a latchkey kid with a brother and sister. Uh, we, me and my brother, he's basically two years younger than me. We ran off and went on adventures and everything and got into trouble as, as kids do, but never really had a parent there. They were always out working. And uh, so let's say until I was maybe 11, 12 years old, I wasn't completely isolated. I had my brother with me. Uh -huh. But then I ended up moving from North Carolina to Oklahoma. And I ended up, my mother, I was actually, I'm not going to go into the whole story and everything because there's years before that. But my mother stayed behind and me and my brother went to go live with my father. And he surprisingly married a woman that uh, we didn't know they had gotten married. We just knew they were boyfriend and girlfriend. And she turned out to be a young woman that had been abused and just didn't have a healthy relationship with her parents growing up and stuff and so she kind of took that out on me and my brother and her son who ended up living with us as well and, and she she took out her need to abuse on not only her stepkids but her son as well yes so she hadn't had custody of her son basically all his life and so my dad helped her get custody of their of her son and so we all three came in at the same time and around that time, I was I was basically getting into a new school system, a whole new world of people I'd never met before. And I was making friends. I think for maybe the first year, I had established myself and made some friends. But then she was physically abusive, like would would hit and push and stuff uh, like slam you into a glass door. I don't want to go too far into it because I've forgiven her by now. And, you know, there's, there's not really a lot to unpack. There's just, she had a lot of anger in her and we were her outlet, but she did all of that in front of my friends. So they lost respect for me and they stopped coming over. And then if they did come over, they were even abusive to me as well. Because they could. Kind of bullying me a little bit, breaking my things. And it never got to the point where it was like they were teaching me a lesson and I got, it was a good thing for me. It mm -hmm. became just isolation. It became the entire school started bullying me to the point where 
one day they actually somebody they jumped me in front of a we had armed security guards at our school and there was an older gentleman and i think i said something along the lines of if only i could have grabbed his gun something along those lines uh-huh so i went home was really upset that all these people that i thought were my friends had jumped me and they didn't punch or anything but they were they grabbed me and threw me down on the ground and i think they wanted to punch and everything but i was squirming and trying to get away and i did get away that's why i lunged for the guy and wanted to grab his gun so the very next day i get to school and half the school didn't show up they actually called it in i was escorted to my locker for a search and seizure to make sure i didn't have a gun on me and they basically thought i was a school shooter this was right around the time right after columbine had happened right and so after that had happened everyone kind of started seeing me as somebody who could potentially be a troubled kid and would do something so terrible and so then you've got no friends everybody stays away from you everybody stayed away from me uh there was a a few instances where uh people would push me randomly and shove me against lockers and stuff and it just I was under the impression that my dad didn't want me to to fight anybody. Like, I don't know why I was under that impression, but he just made it seem like I would be in trouble if I would get into a fight. Right. And it wasn't until later on that I found out he was like, no, I want you to stand up for yourself. But by then, I actually learned to, um, if you know the, the phrases, fight, fight or fight, fight. Yeah. but threes are fun. So I ended up spawning. So I ended up basically becoming what would be seductive today. Nothing uh-huh. sexual, but just that kind of getting really close, like keeping your enemies closer kind of thing. Right. So I just became very close to the people that were my biggest threats. Interesting. And so I thought I had friends again. But it turned out that I I did, and those people were okay with me, but they didn't respect me. It was right around that time. So Columbine had happened, and then it was probably 1999 that I moved to Arkansas and started a new school system there. And right after I left there, school shootings started happening. So... I always had it in my mind that people thought because I disappeared, I believe I disappeared over Christmas break. Uh-huh. So I didn't, I didn't return to school. So I think I was always thinking, Oh, they thought I went to some other place like in California. And because some kid who had shot some people, his story was very similar to mine. And I think his name might've been similar to mine as well. And so I always had it in my mind, and and you'll know, you'll understand with me that my mind has been my worst enemy my entire life until I realized I was on autopilot. And I think that's true for all of us. It, it absolutely is. So going through all of that, I went to Arkansas and just became mute. I literally didn't speak to anybody unless they spoke to me. 
And that created even more tension between people. And they realized that they could anger me. So they found out I had a temper because I had all this frustration built up inside of me from loneliness and stuff like that. And so they purposefully bullied me to try to get me angry. And so I wasn't able to escape what happened in Oklahoma and Arkansas because now, even though it was completely different people, that mindset had stuck with me. I became angry and I started lashing out. So how did did you do that? uh, Well, if I had a hammer in my hand, I'd throw it at somebody. Like I became violent because, like I said, people want to protect themselves or people they care about. And for me, I wanted to protect myself. I felt like the whole world was against me. And back in Oklahoma, where I am now, which has been a weird, one of the reasons why I didn't get a job right away, because I came flooding back to me. It's like, oh, all that trauma happened here. Right. And I've been away from here for 15, 16 years or so. Yeah, all of your high school friends are probably long since gone and nobody knows, nobody cares. But it's in you. Yes. And Oklahoma was middle school. So I started high school in Arkansas and that's where all of that happened. Mm -hmm. And I made friends off and on. But what I ended up doing was just sticking with the more lowly kids and everything and and the, the drug addicts and the troublemakers and stuff like that, even though I wasn't that way at all, except for my anger. And I didn't show that it I bottled it up until it burst out. So I was more like a volcano all the time. And I ended up getting a really good mentor who was kind of like, what does it matter? It doesn't matter. So he helped me through and he was a building trades teacher. So that's why I would have a hammer in my hand. So he, but he had kind of an anger issue himself and he was going through a nasty divorce. So he wasn't the best for anger issues at the time, but he did. He taught me to look people in the eye and to be brave. Uh And that stuck with me up until now. I learned I was way more brave and courageous than I was confident. And he just showed me, he put his hands on my shoulders and he would just stare at me and we would have staring contests. And this was a teacher and And it was in Arkansas, so he wasn't really worried about the rules of teacher appropriate rules and all that stuff. Uh And we were in a small town of just barely 2,000 people anyway. So he put me through that of learning to just look anybody in the eye, to shake anybody's hand, and to just to be braver than I was confident. And I, I stuck with that. And so the loneliness and the isolation continued even from there. I graduated high school. Uh, I met some people through a restaurant that I worked at. It was kind of family owned through my family. And I met all these people that I had gone to high school with. And I didn't really know them in high school. But like I said, it was a very small town. And they were like, we were all just people trying to get along too. And they ended up liking me and we kind of became close after high school, which was really cool. It was good for my self-esteem. And then I realized, well, these people are all going off and getting married and everything. And 
I want something more in my life. And I'd been talking to a girl online and I drove to California. I'd never driven anywhere in my life. I learned how to drive on the road to California. And I ended up, I wasn't in a good place for being in a relationship. I ended up meeting this girl. We were in a really rocky relationship off and on for about four years. Uh, I realized this was the first person I'd ever had like basically even a real friendship with, let alone a relationship and had all my firsts with her and everything like that. And she couldn't respect me, even though she had her own issues and everything as well. She grew up in homeschooling, ended up going to high school for the first time and making real friends. And she valued her friends, realized she was pretty smart. So she went to a private school. She wanted to know she could get into a school. She got into a private college, got on the dean's list. And so while she was in college, that's when I went and we basically lived in the same town. And I know I'm saying a lot of stuff, but I'm leaving the entire story out of it. But what had happened was with her, I realized I was lonely to the point of basically suicide. And because she didn't want to be with me and she was my everything, I put all my eggs in one basket. I drove over 2,000 miles away to be with her. She was the only person who really accepted me. And then she just kind of discarded me. I realized I was 2,000 miles away. There was nobody there that I knew at all. And I was completely on my own in California without any social skills, without, I was already 23, 24 years old. No social skills, no real job skills, nothing. I was just out there, barely knew how to drive a car. And I just started being brave and I'd meet people and I'd talk to them and be like, I need a job. I need to do something. What can I do? And I got into shipping and receiving, realized that was basically the back door to any business in the world. So I started following that path all completely on my own, just very, very much realizing, okay, I need to make a name for myself. I need something. If I have any goals in my life, which I had some, I wanted somebody to validate me and to be like, okay, I want to partner with things. And the whole reason I didn't ever commit suicide was because I didn't have anybody to mourn my death. So I wanted to at least make friends enough, make a relationship with somebody in my life enough that they would mourn my death. And by the time I got to that point, I realized well, I don't want to commit suicide because I have somebody that cares about me. <laughs> but even you're, then, uh, you're describing my life, man. Yeah, I was bullied in in junior high, and you know, I got a little better for me in high school because I had some friends. But uh, you know, married, she took every opportunity to, you know, to I don't want to say bully, but. Mm-hmm depreciate me and uh and prove over and over again that i was less than and she was more than yeah um hey can i relate but but as i listen to you i'm going there is one common factor for you and there's also the same common factor for me you know in oklahoma in arkansas in california the one common factor is you 
you weren't treated with respect. And I'm going to guess that it probably was because you didn't respect you. I Yeah, I didn't know that I could. That, that was the, the gears that I was on autopilot so much that I didn't even know that that was possible. That is actually kind of profound. And the same thing was occurring with me. I, I was treated the way I was because I didn't respect me. Mm-hmm. And for me, there came a moment where a woman comes along and she goes, no, you're not uh, X, Y, and Z, you're A, B, and C. And I'm going, I, all of a sudden I felt like I'm Indiana Jones. Who am I really? And I would really like to be A, B, and C. And is that true? And if so, that's fabulous. And yes. you can guess which road I picked. Uh, and then I became a podcaster. So I'm I'm still a nerd. <laughs> I love that because... I mean, I have so many philosophies, like I said, through observation and everything. Uh-huh. Um, and I'm not going to get into that just now because I could literally talk to you for 10 hours. And that's not <laughs> that is not saying anything that's not true. You so, um, you, you went down that. I, I think it's it's awesome that you didn't commit suicide because you didn't feel like there was anybody to mourn your death. I didn't feel like when uh, when I was planning my own suicide, I didn't feel like that. Well, okay, maybe my girls will, will mourn my death there, but there's that's three of them, and they'll get over it. That that was my thought. Um, I, I I kind of suspect. I know now that it would have destroyed their lives, um, but I kind of suspect that's how a lot of us feel. Uh, who was it I was talking to the other day? Who who said that? Uh, when somebody commits suicide, that it's a selfish gesture. Uh, and they disagreed uh, that it's really more of a, who cares? I don't care. The wife doesn't care. The kids don't care. Nobody cares. So I'll just be done. Was it more that way for you? Not necessarily because I wanted somebody to care. Uh-huh. And the thing is, is my family would have cared, but uh-huh. I always felt like that was a given. It was like, I don't want the given. I want somebody externally to love me, to care about me. And my family, at least on my father's side, I felt loved by them all the time. Uh On my mother's side, it was a much larger family, and and the love kind of had to spread a little bit more thin. Uh (laughs) But Yeah. yeah, that idea that suicide is or isn't selfish, my thinking about that, back then my thinking now is differently but my thinking about that back then was good i want them to hurt Mm. that was the whole point like with school shootings i think the same thing in today's knowledge with everything that's going on there is not a mass shooting that is not also an it's it's a suicide Uh uh-huh whether it's a spiritual suicide or a physical suicide or just a suicide of happenstance of life of circumstances where you're now going to go into a mental institute or you're going to be in prison for life or you're going to death row or whatever your life is changing you're getting out of the situation you're in it's a suicide and of the life that you know presently exactly that's a great way to put it yes and I realized that 
very early on, and I just wanted collateral damage. I just wanted people to feel something regarding me. And I was used to being the center of attention, just very negative attention. And the thing was, was I had some talents and skills with some things. And so I got recognition sometimes and I could hit a home run sometimes. And it was the most, the the hardest thing for me was when I validated myself. And I don't know what it is. I've read about it. I've heard people talk about it in interviews and speeches, but there's something about when you do something that you don't believe you can do, it can make you feel like the biggest piece of crap in the world and that you don't deserve to live when you actually accomplish it. I have a friend who said something like that. Uh, again, a lot of gifts. I, I've been trying to prod or guide or push him towards his own success. Mm-hmm. And he said once, he says, if I succeeded, I know that I would feel like a poser, a faker. I don't remember a charlatan. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, dude, if if your gifts are X and their gifts take you to Y and you're not Y and, you, and, you, and you're not Y, then the poser, the charlatan is the guy that I'm looking at right now. But I think it's interesting that you basically said what he did to me. That if if you if you succeeded, that would be fake. Tell me more. So I I had it happen to me. I had a, a situation which actually put me into basically therapy. I had I was sent by the school to a counselor, but I was in PE, I guess, and it was in high school, and we were in gym class, and we had to play. Uh, it was basically wiffle ball indoors, and. There was, I don't know if I'd already been up to bat once, and I don't remember about that, but I know there was a long line of guys. And I always felt very insecure and, and insignificant. And these most of these guys were jocks, and, and it was a big sports town. And I felt less than already. We had a huge lineup. And of course, because I didn't feel like I was up to par with anybody, I went to the very back of the line. I just just kind of what is the sauntered or whatever a word for slowly walked uh-huh. over there. And they did their first round all the way through the whole lineup. And I was the very last person to bat. And everybody just decided, all the outfielders and the people that were up to bat, they just decided to quit. They just decided, oh, we're not going to play this anymore. And I didn't get my chance. Oh, man. And I got angry about that and I was like I don't remember exactly how it played out but I know I I got upset and then the coach came out and was like no you guys were playing this who's up and it was me so first ball they pitch I hit it hits the back wall home run and I have to run the bases just tears in my eyes just so sad and it it broke my heart that I made that home run it was, it was like a conflict of belief. And then I I don't remember how it played out, like I said, but people were kind of bullying me or something. And it, this might have even happened before that, but they were bullying me. I had the bat in my hand and I swung. It was a plastic whipple bat and I swung or I, I went back to swing 
and the coach caught it in his hand and was like, hey, 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 what are you doing? And he sent another kid up to the counselor and was like, report this guy right now. But he, he said that, like, do it compassionately. Like, this kid, like, he really needs help. And I think that happened. And then he said, you guys need to play to finish. And then I hit the home run. So uh-huh. everything was, like, really intense. So I hit it, make the home run after run all the bases all alone, crying. <laughs> and Yeah, what a, what a, that's the shallowest victory ever in the history of sports. And I'm, I'm probably 16 or 17, 18 years old. I was 18 in high school. So I was one of those ages. And, and those are three ages you really don't want to be in that situation in. And they, uh, the guy had gone up to the counselor, told them, and they called me up. They called my mother to the office and they sat me down and they said, look, we can either expel you or you can go to these mandatory counseling. And it was a blessing in disguise because it actually made me and my mom closer because we had to drive. We were out in the Ozarks and we had to drive 45 minutes to an hour just to get to my counselor. So she would drive me up there. And and we that's how we kind of started to bond because my counselor was a shoulder to shoulder. He knew that for the most part, men bond shoulder to shoulder and women bond eye to eye. And so what he would do is he would drive around and we would have our sessions in his car. He'd go get himself a coffee and me a hot cocoa or something. Uh And we would just drive around in his, basically it was a Subaru rally car. And so that allowed me to get a closer bond with my mom because I learned to be more social to an adult, which I never had in my life before. So even though that situation had happened, and I know going a little bit farther past the story, but because that situation happened where I felt just completely miserable that I did something that was really awesome, it still led to good things. And that's kind of one of my philosophies in life is everything leads to good things. Well, and that's one of the uh, last questions that I ask. But before I go there, I I, want to tell you how much of a twin I am to you. So junior high for me, uh, there was a moment where it was probably during lunch at a Frisbee throwing contest. And I was like, mm-hmm. I can throw a Frisbee. I'm going to do this. But then I got in line alone and I didn't feel like I was a part of the people around me. So I stood a distance off to the side. Mm-hmm. And so I just kind of, uh, made my own line of one. And as they moved, I moved. And, uh, then we get to the front of the line and they go, you're not in line. You can't throw that frisbee. And uh, so I made a stink and finally they threw it to me. And uh, at this point, you know, when I was what in seventh grade, I just chucked it and I cried. And now I was the laughing stock of the entire school. Did that many times. Yeah. Uh, It's like even in high school, you know, I'd meet random guys and they'd say, aren't you the one that cried a few years ago? Um, and yeah, I didn't respect myself. And so here I am many fast forward many years later. And it wasn't until just a short number of years ago that I could even talk to a guy because guys were dangerous. Yeah. Uh, somehow in my brain, I flipped a switch and, uh, and now, (laughs) now guys are, it's, it's awesome. And it was, it's all, it's always been all in my mind. 
Yes, everything is in our, our minds. And I have so much I can say, Garth, but I want to go back to relating to you on that in particular, because in high school, right around the time I was getting out of high school, the news was sharing all this stuff about all these women being kidnapped, raped, and murdered. Uh-huh. And I started hating men, like hating them, everything they said. I just hated guys. And then I started disrespecting and hating women because of all the, because they loved men and they just kept putting themselves in harm's way. And I became, and this was before, like right before I went to California. So I was just building myself up with all of this anger. Like everybody is just so stupid. Everybody's harming themselves. They're putting themselves in harm's way. And I felt rejected and neglected. So it was like, oh, you women are choosing all these terrible men over me. And so I really started resenting women. And it became this very, very unhealthy world for me to be living in within my own head. And I was doing basically everything I could to just stay away from all people. So my self-isolation was beginning. And then when I wanted to be around people, I held on too tight and I pushed them away. And back to what, what you had said about Frisbee and that way of, of being, which was like, oh, this isn't working for me. You guys suck. So I'm going to throw the ball. I was doing that probably in third and fourth and fifth grade. And it never worked in my favor. People didn't like me for it. I actually lived in Arkansas as a child, moved to North Carolina and Virginia. And then I came back to Arkansas, that same small town, after I was in Oklahoma. And people would, this was a huge lesson in my life, was like so many things that were significant to me in my life because I had left and come back, those were all steamrolled by all the people that stayed there. They didn't remember any of that stuff. So I was still holding it in my head when I went to high school there that all these same people hated me and that they were were upset with me because of these things that had happened 11 years prior to that, not even realizing for probably another 10, 15 years that all of that was in my head. Yeah, people hate me. That's who I am. That's going to make that's going to be who I make sure other people see in me as somebody who gets hated. Uh, yeah. What would it mean to you? Let's say I was Robin Williams. I'm a genie. Mm-hmm. I can give you uh, I can give you one wish. And that wish is um, all that stuff in your head is gone. Now, you know, believe and understand and accept that you are as good as anybody. And that you are respectable, lovable, acceptable, as good as. And uh, the hottest woman in the room walks up to you and says, hi, and you're confident and you're going, hi. So what would that mean to you? A little bit difficult to answer because I also know another question you ask. And the thing is, is I'm basically there in my life now. Uh huh. So I've gotten to that point. How'd you get there? What's, what switch did you flip? What's your recipe? Well, basically, and I say basically a lot right now, but it's what I had said earlier about 
everything happens for us, nothing happens to us, not everything's about us. Mm-hmm. Using that as my my mantra, knowing that everything, unless you die, everything always works out. If you get into a horrific accident and you're disfigured, but you survive, you're lucky that you survive. It's all a perception. And I realized there's a shared reality that everybody has. And then there's your own individual reality that everybody has as well. And your individual reality is at your control. Once you realize those controls are there, you can do whatever you want. And over time, over it was always traumatic, terrible things that had happened um, in terms of isolation and rejection and abandonment that always made me stronger. But I realized humiliation, self-humiliation, made me learn things much quicker. And humiliation helps other people learn things, but not so much when you humiliate them as when they feel humiliated by their own actions which is like a mistake or something. Somebody who can't make the same mistake multiple times because they learned from it. And it's usually because they're like, I can't do that again. I, I'm an idiot if I do that again. And yeah. that's, that's something I learned. I actually uh, played Frisbee for about 20 years, maybe more. That's something I learned about people is that there are, there are idiots who, for me, I like to win. I like mm-hmm. to win playing Frisbee. And if you throw turnovers, you don't win. The other team gets right. the disc and then they go down and score and you lose and they win. And that sucks. Yeah. So my philosophy was don't throw turnovers. If we don't throw turnovers, we don't lose. Yes. And, and so you that's get, a pattern, by the way. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I think that's probably a, a thing for life. And so I'd, uh, you'd have certain guys who wanted to shoot the equivalent of four-point plays every time they got the disc. Mm-hmm. And so I'd go after them. I'd, you know, I'd tell them gently the first time and less gently the second time and even less gently the third time. And by the time we got around number four, I was ready to knock their head off. I'm like, I'm not out here working my butt off so that you can be a hero. Yeah. And uh, it did result in some unpleasantness. But um, it's... It, it, it's one of those things where, you know, if somebody is stupid enough to keep repeating the same mistake and keep seeing that it doesn't work and they keep doing it, that's frustrating to the rest of us. Yeah. We learn from other people's mistakes at that point. Yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. Talk to me about the, uh, one of the lowest points in your, in your life. I'm, I'm guessing that was probably associated with isolation and loneliness or maybe it so, wasn't. Uh, it was, and it's, it's, really hard to answer that as well because there's been so many peaks and valleys but and every single time every valley very low point the peak just shoots right up every single time Uh and i will choose to talk about my most recent which was 2020 okay and that was kind of a surprise to me because it really didn't have much to do with the isolation of the world around us it was more that I had gotten close to somebody and they weren't getting the results in their business that they wanted because I was distracting them. Uh huh. That sounds like falseness, but go ahead. So when that happened, they decided to cut me off. And even though I was doing everything I could in my power for what I was told to do in order to get 
kind of the things I wanted out of my situation. They decided, well, she basically told me I'm not a shoulder to lean on. I'm not a shoulder to cry on kind of person. Uh-huh. And I was getting to the point where I would get desperate when people would start to leave. So I had throughout my life, that's where the valleys and the peaks came from, was terrible, terrible separation anxiety, abandonment issues, a huge fear of abandonment, like a detrimental, I will kill myself if you leave kind of abandonment uh-huh. issues. And and that's where I pushed a lot of people away. And this particular girl, uh, she wasn't a romantic interest or anything. She was just somebody I really was having a, a better experience in life with. Uh, there was nothing sexual. There was nothing of that sort. It was just she was exposing me to things that really put my brain on fire and was like, this is amazing. I love this stuff, which was personal growth and self-development and making money and, and stuff like that. So she realized I was kind of being an anchor to her in a way that she didn't like. And it turns out she was sick. She found out she knew about my uh, abandonment issues. And so I think what she tried to do is what everybody has tried to do in the past, which is not be honest with me and be secretive about things. Interesting. And then when I find out about it, I feel betrayed. And then I'm like, that's what hurts me worse than anything is that you wouldn't trust me. And so you strung me along, not knowing something while you had all this other stuff going on on the side. And when I found all of that out, even right before I found that out, actually, I just got to a breaking point where it was like, I don't have any friends. I don't have anybody around me that I can talk to. Uh, the only people I have are hundreds of miles away up in Washington State and back in maybe Oklahoma. And with all of that, I just felt like I need somebody to talk to. I need a friend. And she just completely disappeared. And we had some meetings for some some business prospect things that I wanted to try to get into. And she kept flaking and kept flaking. And so it all led up to this time where it was like, okay, well, I'm going to start causing trouble because if you're away, I'm going to start pushing you away. And so I did. I started doing untrustworthy things. I started not even realizing that's what my mindset was, but I started doing these things to get attention, to get the attention back on me because I was like, if you're gone because of abandonment, then I need to bring you back to me. And I'm, I'm used to negative negative attention, so I'll take that. I'll take negative attention over positive attention as long as you're here. As long as it's attention. And so, and I realized, and that was the low point where I, I had no intention of killing myself or anything like that, but I kind of alluded to that idea. And I sent a provocative picture of a knife against my wrist. And this was in 2020. Uh huh. Because I was being manipulative. I was doing whatever I could to protect myself, which meant I needed somebody's love. I needed somebody to be there to know that they cared. And this particular person completely, I, to this day, I haven't talked to her. I've gotten messages through other people from her just uh, 
because I know she cared and she proved to me in a really big way she cared, but I was just too much for her. And I realized that I, back then, and I say that in 2020, but all the way up until 2020, I could be very scary because I learned if anything threatened me to become 10 times bigger than it and to scare it away. And so that I didn't serve you. Scariest person in the room. So that lowest point where she sounds like she convinced you that you were an anchor and you allowed that to be even true because you accepted it. And uh, I'm speaking through my own life now. I've got parallels of my own, but you're an anchor now. You believe it. She says it must be true. That sounds like a low point. How's it served you? Well, truly, it did serve me because it, again, it's hard to say because everybody has anecdotes and people like to teach off of anecdotes and anecdotes aren't for everybody because they're anecdotes. Uh -huh. And for me, I had had all of my anecdotes and experiences and my lessons and everything leading up to that point that I could pinpoint what I needed to change. So I will say, I don't believe I ever believed I was an anchor because I fought and fought and fought to the point that she just ghosted me. She abandoned me, left me completely. And I, one of the things that she actually told me though, was the reason why you're not getting where you want doing the things that I've shown you to do is because you don't believe that you are worthy of it. And so that stuck with me. And I was thinking, okay, she's gone. It was kind of back again to the, I'm not going to commit suicide yet because there's no one there to mourn for me. So I'm going to build up somebody to care for me again. So, and that's how I got over that first relationship when I went to California, when I first got there. Right. So I did that where it was like, okay, well, I'm just going to work on myself and get myself back to a point where she'll talk to me again. And eventually I got myself to a point where I didn't need her to talk to me again. And I was back to where I needed to be. There's two points I want to say about that is now she's making about 500000 to a million dollars a year net uh -huh. that I'm not in her life. Okay. So that could reinforce the idea that I'm an anchor. But I still, to this day, I truly don't believe that. I believe that I could actually help her make even more. I think very highly of myself when it comes to these things. But she gave me so much wisdom. For one thing, her story is unbelievable as well. She had a child through force, and she's Middle Eastern. So she had a child uh, when she was 14 years old. And she's younger than me, and her child is now 21, 22 years old. And she went through a lot of stuff. Uh, she didn't get to see her kids for a long time. She came to America because she was invited, because she was a doctor and she worked with cancer and did some really great things, wrote some great papers. So she was invited to America technically illegally. It was only legal because America invited her. Uh -huh. And then she came here and basically became a kind of a mentor to me. And she told me, you are not a victim. You are never a victim. You can never be a victim. And this is somebody who's been through, you know, the acid burns and cigarette burns and torture and female neglect and all the Middle Eastern stuff that she could have gone through, having her kids taken away from her, 
uh, being sold off as a child, um, all of these things. And because she had told me that in the time that I knew her, and I really only this, I kind of got to know her in April of 2020, and everything had fizzled out uh, by the second week of August 2020. So everything that happened happened in that small time frame. And it was this huge roller coaster ride. But every, the, the things she told me, it, it just it stuck with me. And because kind of like the humiliation thing, like I said, when you feel humiliated, you kind of self-reflect and you're like, what did I do wrong? What do I do? And because she wasn't there for me to argue with or for me to ask questions and to, to dwell on, I had to focus on myself. And so she was gone, still gone to this day. But I self-reflected, just started being like, okay, I'm not a victim. I'm not a victim. I can't be a victim. The only thing I can do is help somebody else that I think is a victim and also help them by helping them to understand that they can never be a victim either. And that changed my life completely. And that's where it came in with the everything happens for you, nothing happens to you. And I I realized these are messages I've heard in my past, but I never caught on to them. They didn't stick because I hadn't had those experiences. I didn't have that pathway that led to them just yet. So they were scenery on my path. I was like, hi, bye. I didn't, I had no idea what it was. But when it got into my way and it became integral of my being, then I was like, okay, this makes sense now. And that actually goes back to me teaching and training people when I was at my driving job was I allowed them to self-humiliate and I also allowed them to just experience things which I called the primer, which was, I want you to forget everything you've learned, everything, because it's going to stick in their subconscious anyway. And once they get out there and have to do things for themselves, then things kind of start bing, 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 bing. They get a familiarity with it. And they're like, oh, I remember this. Oh, I remember this. They get this kind of self-congratulations to them. And so I remembered that I had been teaching people that way. And I took my own rules, my own lessons, and was like, okay, I got to do that for myself. And that's where that peak came from, right out of that valley. So yeah, it sounds to me like, you know, as you as you realized that uh, the best way to get out of your own hole is to help somebody else out of theirs. Yeah. And, and I love the everything happens for you and nothing happens to you. I I have another example that sometimes I use. I, I met a guy online uh, who got put in a wheelchair mm -hmm. and he was bitter. And he made sure that everybody knew he was bitter and that he was in a wheelchair and that sucked and for him. And he was, he hated God, he hated life and he hated everybody around him because he was in a wheelchair for him. Then I met, then I met another guy who was in a wheelchair, Clay Egan. And I talked to him a little bit about, uh, and Clay is a race car driver. Uh, <laughs> his joke is that he got in a crash and, uh, he, he says, I can't feel my legs. And, and the guy was immediately panicked. He goes, yeah, I never feel my legs. But, but anyway, he, he said that being put in a wheelchair saved him because he was on the wrong path. He was on a motorcycle, ran into a horse, ended up in a wheelchair. Best thing that ever happened to him. Yeah, I can believe that. And yeah. 
uh, you know, and so everything happens for you. Nothing happens to you. Those are powerful words. Um, like I said, those aren't my words. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, they are now. <laughs> uh, they're my mantra, that's for sure. Yes, they are. Uh, Wes, thank you. I, I appreciate your time, your wisdom, and uh, and your talents, and your 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 awesomeness. Well, I'm happy to be here, and I appreciate you saying all those things. Shows me you're truly listening, which is what this podcast is about. That's kind of what this is about. Hey, thank you for listening to this Manalizing podcast. I appreciate it. You know, I don't go hunting for men with big stories and big issues to deal with. I find that pretty much any man that I talk to, he's going to have a story. If you're inspired by what you hear, here's my invitation. Join us. Join Manalizing. Manalizing.com. Lift and be lifted. Help other men and allow other men to help you. Let's do this together. We look forward to meeting you. Manalizing.com.